Hello and welcome to the podcast for the August 2011 of The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Richard Lane here and this month I'm joined by Peter Hayward. And Peter, welcome and happy birthday TLID. Yes, hi there Richard. It's quite a quite an occasion for us. It is our 10th birthday. Our first issue came out in August of 2001 and, and since then we've had 12 issues every year and, and gone from strength to strength. Just before we talk about some specific topics that, that resonated back in 2001 and also in this month's issue, there's, there's a nice recapitulation or, or updating of, of some of the interest areas in ID. Just tell us a bit about the journal's impact factor because it has come a long way in 10 years. Obviously, when a, when a journal launches, it doesn't have an impact factor yet because there's nothing to judge that, judge that against. But when we received our first impact factor in 2005, we were already at the, at the top of the infectious diseases field, which was quite an achievement back then. But since then, we've uh, increased over five points on the impact factor and increased our lead over the other journals in the infectious diseases field. And the impact factors, which have also very recently been released, our 2010 impact factor, which has also just been recently released, is actually 16.144. Excellent. A very healthy score indeed. And in terms of the content, Peter, in the August issue 2011, you've deliberately, haven't you, commissioned some reviews really to update on the situation in two really interesting key areas of ID, yellow fever and tuberculosis. Do you want to talk about yellow fever first? Well, back in 2001, two of the reviews that we had were on those subjects, and we thought that these were areas that were ripe for an update for our August 2011 issue. We went back to the authors of of those original articles from the 2001 issue and asked them if they'd like to contribute again, and we've got these two strong reviews. The Yellow Fever review... While back in 2001, we gave a bit of an overview of the disease as a whole, which included pathogenesis and treatment, and and then also the risk areas and and the use of vaccination. What we've done in in the August 2011 issue for yellow fever is Emily Chentes and colleagues, including Thomas Monath, who wrote in the 2001 issue, what they've done is to look at the risk map for yellow fever around the world. And now yellow fever is a disease which is confined to Africa and Asia for the time being. But there is concern that it will spread to other areas as the disease vector spread and conditions are are ripe for the disease to arise in those areas. What the authors have done is that they've produced a series of maps showing the different risk areas within Africa and South America. And what's really interesting is comparing this with the 2001 review and the 2011 review is that while the broad areas haven't changed, the areas are still Africa and South America, What's really interesting is the detail of the mapping that has changed and the amount of information that we can put on these maps. And so whereas in 2001, countries formed large blocks of where the disease was endemic and where travellers were at risk and where the people living in those countries were at risk of the disease, now the authors are able to look at regions within those countries and get really fine detail and then link that detail to factors such as elevation and the vegetation types in those areas. It's really interesting to look at how the technology of disease mapping and the detail that you can get onto these things has changed in the past decade. That sounds like an excellent read. Do you briefly just want to mention the review, the review on TB as well? This review is by Stefan Kaufman, who was one of two authors on a review in the 2001 issue about tuberculosis vaccine, the potential for that. It's an interesting situation in that in 2001, the story was that 
the one vaccine we had for TB, which was BCG, was losing effectiveness in some areas. And it's a bit of a, a sad situation that in 10 years on, the situation is still the same, that the one vaccine we have for tuberculosis is of diminished effectiveness. But what Stefan Kaufman does do in the review is looks at how the technology of vaccine design has moved on in that time and then also looks at what the potential candidates are now and the situation with vaccine development for tuberculosis now. It's interesting to compare the two. Also, Peter, we should mention it was published online a couple of weeks ago and received quite a bit on surprisingly media attention and this concerned a strain of MRSA that turned up in dairy products, milk and such like. Do you want to briefly mention this? And again, there's a link back to 2001, isn't there? Yeah, so this is a review on a a novel MEC type of of MRSA that was identified in, first it was identified in, in cattle and milk products and then it was identified in humans as well. What's interesting is that it's a, it's a completely new type that's not normally that wouldn't normally be picked up by the tests that are used to identify uh, the MEC types of, of Staph aureus that are commonly known. And um, and what's uh, particularly interesting about this is that when I went back to look at the 2001 issue, I noticed that we had a comment in there from uh, Neil Woodford and David Livermore um, that was looking that was about the first sequencing of the MRSA genome and how that was a laborious effort that while genomic sequencing techniques have moved on a lot even up to that point and were much less laborious than they have been, they still took a long time and a lot of effort and and it was really a lot of work to go into that. But, But the authors of that comment did look forward to a time when our genetic sequencing techniques and our ability to handle genetic information would a would have improved so much that that we'd be using these techniques more much more red, readily in a clinical investigation and in microbiological investigation. And it's interesting to see that 10 years on from that, we've got a study that, that uses genetic techniques to rapidly identify this this new MEC type and a nice full circle looking back coincidence that this should appear a decade on. And it's a really interesting study. And it shows that with this new MEC type, Although it is uh, resistant to antibiotics, the bacterium doesn't actually seem to be particularly pathogenic, although it has been isolated from patients. In, indeed, the oldest isolate is known from a patient from 1975. It's actually low pathogenicity and appears to be low uh, infectivity as well. But it is interesting to identify these new strains and, and see them arise in livestock and, and the interaction between livestock and human beings and how these bacteria and spread and obviously as the authors point out with bacteria which are constantly evolving and their genomes are constantly updating and changing there's always the possibility that a, ba- a species or a strain which is currently low pathogenicity or low infectivity these things can change and it's a very dynamic environment indeed good comparison with with um, influenza for example mm. where where the uh, the makeup can change and and you know pathogenicity can obviously change and has can ha- can have serious public health implications so in a way it's as you say it's great that the, the rapid testing can now be done it's yeah. kind of it's just as well that the rapid testing can be done because the because the bacterium's changing so much no that's really that is really interesting and, and in that comment they were looking forward to the times when we could analyze genomes and now we can and we can